Welcome to Beautiful Botswana, the travel podcast, where we aim to travel around Botswana and learn about this wonderful safari destination as we chat with experts, safari professionals and safari legends, as we share stories, recommendations and help you plan your Botswana holiday. Joining me today for my next episode of Beautiful Botswana, the travel podcast, is a friend. We've adventured over quite a few areas of Botswana together. Luckily, I mean, all the stories we've got to share from our adventures are good ones that um, ended well. Some of them were long days, but they all ended well. But I've invited him here today to talk to me about self-driving through Botswana as it is an up-and-coming form of uh, travel in the country. And he is a man who sees the flip side of a self-drive with his business that was doing vehicle recoveries. So he was always witnessing a self-drive going badly. And so I've asked him today to join me today to talk about driving yourself through the bush. As I say, it's how those of us who live here tend to discover Botswana and experience it. And so it gives me great pleasure to introduce Jason Kenner, formerly of Bush Warrior Botswana. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Tessa. So, Jason, you grew up in Botswana. Would you like to talk, start off by introducing your, yourself and your sort of story of how it was that you came to be growing up here? Um, I was born in Lancashire. Um, my dad is from the UK. My mom is from Khansi. We only actually came to Botswana in 78 when I was eight years old. That was a bit of a culture shock. I'm sure. Leaving Lancashire and coming to Fancy, where there was no tar roads. We didn't have electricity on the farm. I think there was one electric light bulb that my uncle hooked up to a 12-volt battery. Otherwise, it was either paraffin lamps or those pressurized paraffin lamps. So yeah, everything everything that we did at night was accompanied by that that noise, that familiar noise from the paraffin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so you arrived in Botswana age eight, had yes. this culture shock, mm-hmm. and then assimilated with your cousins, local community, family members you had in Kansi. Yeah. The the only the only people we knew were then the the kids growing up on the farm who were extended family. They were my mom's half-brothers and sisters. Um, so we very quickly started to learn Naro. Um, and then just as I was starting to learn it, I was whipped away to, to boarding school in Pretoria. Um, but my my brother, Carl, who's four years younger than me, he stayed in Hadzi and he, he really immersed himself in narrow and hunting with catapults and being on the farm and and having that freedom to the point where he could hardly speak english at the end and he he spoke to my mother in bushman amazing yeah so he really enjoyed it whereas i was offered boarding school not enjoying it Mm -hmm. yeah and then you did a stint back in the uk yes well let's call it a stint it was a long I finished school in the UK when I was 15. I went to finish school and then messed about for a bit, had a couple of different jobs and realized that 
although genetically I had one foot firmly placed in Lancashire, I also had another foot firmly placed in Africa. And I wasn't going to be happy until I had scratched that itch to come to Africa. So at the age of 23, I came out to Botswana for the first time in, in like eight years. You chose, it was just choosing it for yourself rather than mm. it being pulled by your parents. Yes. And so yeah, you, you know, chose yeah. at that age to, to come to, to Botswana. Botswana. And in those days, <clears throat> again, still no tire roads, still very much free and so it, like it was the, the last frontier and I could do well I wouldn't say I could do whatever I wanted but I, I was it was me with nobody telling me what to do mm-hmm. so I kind of I fell in love with Botswana from that point of view that it was the land of the free there was no nanny state but we still we didn't have electricity on the farm yeah there was a generator that we would start it just at sunset and then we watched films on videos um, until nine ten o'clock at night. And then back to the quiet and the dark. Yeah. So I loved that. And, and then that's back to being like same farms you grew, you were on as a child or did yeah. you get your own? No, no it was the same farms. Mm-hmm. So the hard battle farms, I think in Hansi, they're quite well known. It's a well-known family. And there was, there was 10 farms in the hard battle family. So yes, we, I had quite a lot of, ground to cover in those days as a 23 year old uh, looking after my uncle's farming interests there Mm. and then from that what what happened next so i because of that i wanted to come back to botswana and live but because i had a british passport i needed some sort of qualification so i thought well farming seems like fun so i went back to the uk and applied to college and did a national certificate in agriculture, which is a, a one-year course. But then having done so well, then the headmaster of that college, who coincidentally taught my dad the same course 20 years previously, he thought that it would be a good idea if I went on to do an HND. And in their, those days, this is more than What is an HND? Ago, higher national diploma. Okay. So Still in agriculture. Still in agriculture. Um, so, yeah, my, my, my educational background is all agriculture. But within that, you learn about mechanics and you learn about driving tractors and reversing trailers. And it's, it's all part of the course. Um, and in between being at college in Lancashire, I was coming back to Botswana and driving um, Hiluxes and Land Cruisers off-road and my uncle was heavily involved with the with the first people and the bushmen in those days. So I was pretty much left to my own devices. So I had to learn very quickly how to use four-wheel drive, how to not get stuck, how, how um, deflating tires worked, how, how to fix things. Mm-hmm. Like in those days, we broke a lot of springs on the back. And the best way to fix it was that if we just slaughtered meat for the, for the house – or we just slaughtered an ox for the for the butchery, you could actually wrap the wet skins around the springs and once it dried and dried hard, it would you could well, I think we drove it for six months like that. Okay. So yeah, I I learnt a lot in those early days That's coming to Botswana. Bush mechanics stuff. Yes, it is, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of bush mechanics stuff. That and I think there was my uncle's foreman, he he was called Billy Morris. 
who also went to school with my uncle way back in the 40s and 50s, he taught me a lot about bush mechanics and, and being self-reliant and servicing servicing engines, rebuilding little um, Kubota engines and things like that. So then at some point you meet your lovely wife and you come you move to Hansi and start a family and and then Maun, the Mao move happened. Yeah, so you're 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 skipping quite a lot. I am. <laughs> um, Zoe and I met in two thousand two for the first time when she came to Hansi doing a masters in human wildlife conflict. And of course her being the only English girl in town, I, I managed to home in on her. Well, the bushfire must have spread quite quickly that there was someone new in town. Oh, yeah, yes, no, it, it definitely did. I went down to the bar where I knew that she was, and I propped up the bar and, and yeah, tried to catch her eye. But so she was only there for three months and then had to return to the UK to finish her degree. And we sort of stayed in touch over the years. Um, and then she went off and did her own thing. And by 2008, our lives sort of came back together again. Yeah. So that, yeah, you're glossing over that. So all that time. <laughs> and in I that time, in you were still in Kansas. I was still And you were still working on the farm. Still working for myself, still pretty much living hand to mouth. Yes. Mm. And then you ran Bush Warrior. Yeah. What made you decide that this was a business to start, this idea of vehicle rescue? So. When the so we were living in Hadsey, we had two kids, and Zoe's business was taking off. She knew or she wanted to be based in Mound rather because the opportunities for her would be much better. She'd have better internet access in Mound. Like on the farm, there was it was only through cell phones, so it, it didn't work. And her driving into town every day was just going to be expensive. So she made the decision to move to Mound for the kids' education and for business opportunities. Yeah, she moved, and I tried to stay on at the farm, but it just became ridiculous, like me commuting to Mound every two weeks and Zoe having to commute on the odd weekends back to Fancy. So, yeah, eventually I said, no, this is ridiculous, and I, I, sold, I sold the cattle and moved to Mound but now I had no income. I'd always been able to rely on, on cattle for an income. So now I had no income. I had a cruiser. So I started thinking about, well, what, what can I do? What do I enjoy doing? And I realized I really enjoy driving in the bush. I think I'm quite good at driving in the bush. I know how to not get stuck in sand. I'm not familiar with water coming from Hansi. I'm not familiar with mud coming from Hansi. But that's where the opportunities lay. And given that it's a safari town, so the original idea was to sort of start advertising and say, well, if you're on your trip and you end up at Third Bridge and you realize, oh, we've, we've forgotten beer or we've forgotten ice, then I could do a supply run. Mm -hmm. um, and then I talked to a few other people. I talked to somebody in Hansi who, who has a car hire company, and he'd always say, oh, it's... It's not regular, but it is work if you if you provide backup to, to car hire people because they don't know how to drive. And he said that um, a few times he gets called by his clients and they're stuck and all he had to do was deflate their tires and he drove it out for them. 
So I thought, that sounds that sounds easy. I can do that. That's yeah, I can do that. So I I yeah, I started that the four by four bush warrior. And how how many years were you doing that for, running in and out of the bush and rescuing people? I think I only did it for two years. Two, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then of course we face the fact that coronavirus hit and our town has taken a bit of a hammering. And unfortunately, it means you guys are leaving Mount. So this is a bit of a bittersweet interview because it's it's sort of the last time we will be chatting face-to-face for a good while. But yeah. But um, at the same time, I think it's, it's going to be great to talk about some of the stories from, from the Bush Warrior days. So as the Bush Warrior... What would be the tips you would give a self-drive safari goer? Somebody, I mean, I understand why the self-drive thing appeals to people because they like the idea of being autonomous and being able to go at their own speed and their own pace and, mm. and find stuff for themselves. And they're people who just aren't comfortable being looked after in a hosted sort of lodge environment. So there, and it, as, as I said at the beginning in my intro, it is a growing market. Mm. But you run the risk of people who might be very comfortable driving at 200 k's an hour down the autobahn uh, now suddenly being behind the the wheel of a 4x4 and facing some challenging conditions and not knowing quite actually how to drive a 4x4 Mm -hmm. accurately. So what do you think are the big things that somebody who is tackling a true Botswana self-drive safari, not just sticking to the tar roads, but actually going off-road or going onto the dirt roads – what should they know prior to, to picking up their car? I think before anybody comes here, they should be on some sort of a familiarization course, whether it's off-roading or just a, a workshop. Just to, I mean, a lot of people do not know where the engine is or how the gearbox works or um, the fact, or how four-wheel drive works, the difference between all-wheel drive and four-wheel drive the difference between part-time four-wheel drive and full-time four-wheel drive. So just to familiarize themselves with that would be a very good start. How freewheel hubs work, if your car even has freewheel hubs. I think there's there's a lot of assumption when people get into the car hire that they assume that because it's four-wheel drive, it can go anywhere. And the the people giving them the car assume that because they have a license, they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. There's there's too much assumption on both sides of it, um, and familiarizing yourself with the equipment that you're given as well. I have rescued a German couple who um, I was on another job and I happened to come across them. The husband couldn't speak a word of English, so she had to translate, and it turned out that he he knew four wheel driving in Germany. He was very familiar with it there. But he'd managed to get himself into into it like a really sticky situation in the mud. And then he found that the high lift jack didn't work. So just I think just by arriving and checking that all this stuff works, don't assume that just because it's on the side of the vehicle that it's, it's gonna work, yes. Because the yeah, there there are checks that are made by everybody, but not everybody does their job correctly or properly. So, yeah, you you do have to make sure. And I think that first night in Mound or your first night in, in Vintok or wherever you pick up the car hire from, you should have a shakedown. You should, you're going to go camping. So then even if you're in a, in a controlled campsite, you should check. Does the high lift jack work? Does the compressor work? Does the tire pressure gauge work? Mm-hmm. 
does the does the fuel gauge work? Do you actually have a full tank of fuel? Mm. And also, I mean, if somebody's doing this in their own vehicle, the same applies. Check these things. Yes, yeah. Don't just I, get in the car, turn the key and hit the road. Well, have a check. Yes. So I have heard stories about people living in Durban, and this is obviously the older Hiluxes that had freewheel hubs, but they they drive around in Durban all the time. They've never locked the freewheel hubs. And then they come to Botswana, and suddenly they need four-wheel drive, and the front diff has seized the rust with the rust above the oil line it's completely seized but underneath it's of course it's it's well lubricated because it's sitting in it so if they just occasionally lock the hubs driving around durban and just let everything lubricate then it would have been fine but nobody ever does that because they think that it's wrong to lock the hubs and now all of a sudden you're trying to lock your hubs in the middle of nowhere and not able to yeah and then you have to call me and have a very expensive bill at the end <laughs> Um, anything else that somebody could um, do prior to their first night with that car? I think look Some at the engine. Mm-hmm. Opening the bonnet and looking at the engine. Um, I was talking to somebody and he said it's called First Parade. Like it's a, I think it's a military thing. So when you open the bonnet and you look and you check and you see, well, there's the battery and there's the thing, or what is that over there? And you find out. You ask yourself questions and you find out what it is, and oh, there's the dipstick. If you did that every morning, you'd notice as soon as something's wrong, you would notice it because you've been familiarizing yourself with the engine and the layout of the engine. That doesn't look right. Oh, the fan, look, the fan's broken. Or the, you, you'd notice things if you start just looking at it. The men are always looking at engines, and women are always laughing about men looking at engines, but actually, we're, we're, we're looking to learn mm. and identify. And it's a very important thing. And then when somebody is here and they've now picked up the car mm. and, as you say, they need to know, where, you know, where is the stuff, even as simple as where is the, where's the toolkit, where's the, where's the jack, et cetera, et cetera. And they're now ready to hit the road. Mm. What are the sort of big rules of driving a 4x4 in Botswana that you think everybody should know? I think, first of all, uh, check that nobody's over-tightened your wheel studs. It happens a lot. Um, what are the implications of that? If you, you if they are snap the wheel studs because okay. they've been over-tightened, they've been over-stretched. If, they, if they're over-tightened, they'll over-stretch and eventually snap off. But also... Um, I have had an old couple who hired a car and they were driving out towards Mbabe and one of their wheels came off. And I went out there to go and change the studs for them. And then I said, I'll just check all your other wheels. And I could not undo any of their studs. So I sent them back to Mound and told them to either go to the tire service or go to the place where they hired the car from to undo those those nuts, they were just too tight. So if they'd had a flat tire, they were they going to They could never have them. taken those tires off, mm-hmm. yes. That would have been an even worse disaster. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so check the tires, check the studs. What else is on the list? Um, yeah, first parade. Um, I think also your, your equipment, does the tire pressure gauge actually work? And is what it, is your tire pressure? I could tell you what it should be, but every car will be different. Every car is slightly heavier or lighter. Some people have more stuff on. Some people have too much stuff on. So 
um, you are going to have to find a tire pressure that you're comfortable with. But the starting point should be should be on the little label in the door. Um, a lot of them are 2.2 bar. Other cars will be slightly higher, others slightly lower. Um, you're just going to have to find one that you're comfortable with. And as soon as you hit the gravel, deflate. But don't remember, if you take air out, you can't necessarily put it back in. So deflate a little bit. See if it drives nice. If it's still a bit rough, take a little bit more out. And then you get to know the car as well. That becomes quite important. Any sort of tips you talked about hitting the gravel? Any tips in terms of driving on gravel? Yes. Uh, if you do have freewheel hubs, you should lock the hubs as soon as you go hit the gravel, whether you're going to Shirobi or Central Kalahari. Lock the hubs as soon as you get there and put it in four high. There's no there's no shame in having it in four-wheel drive. In fact, it will be more stable. It will drive better. And, and then it, is, do people need to worry about their speed if they're in four high? Or do you think that the gravel road limits the speed naturally? I th- I, yeah, I, I would hope the gravel road is limiting the speed naturally. Anything over 80 kilometers an hour, I think, would be way too fast, especially for somebody from Europe mm-hmm. who isn't used to it. So, yeah, within the bounds of reason, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, there's no point trying to drive at 120 just because you can. <laughs> just because it's a higher car. <laughs> exactly, yes. Do not drive it like you stole it. <laughs> um, and uh, any sort of any other tips for for hitting the gravel, which is generally what comes after the tar when we're I, in Botswana. I also used to deflate tires mm-hmm. for myself. Um, I drove a lot of Land Rovers, so on the tar I'd be like on two point two, two point four bar, and as soon as I hit the gravel, I'd go down to one point seven. But like I said, that that suited me and it suited my driving style and it suited the car. Um, with the tires I had on the car, I, on sand I could go down to 1.4, then it would still be fine. If we're going down to 1.2, maybe you're going to start picking up punctures or you're going to mm-hmm. start um, rolling tires off the rims. Um, but that was my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. Everybody else has to sort that out for, mm-hmm. for themselves. And then leaving the gravel and getting into sand, any particular tips there for how to tackle a sandy patch? Because, you know, what I love about driving in Botswana is that at some times of the year you look at a sandy patch, you see those apple leaves coming and you know that they're sand because you can see the apple leaves and you just think, "Uh uh-oh, because it's September and October and the sand is like liquid. There are other times of the year where you see the apple leaves and you sigh a huge sigh of relief because it means that you've at least got a bit of easy driving ahead of you and no mud because it's it's the rainy season and when, when it rains, the sand is actually very comfortable. But when it is soft and hot, um, any particular tips for tackling sand? Yes. Um, so it's quite important you mention when it's hot. Early morning when the sand is cold, it's very easy to drive on. The, the later you get into the day, from sort of 10, 11, 12 o'clock during the day, it gets hotter. And I think, in my experience, the sand gets softer. Because mm-hmm. I think I could be proved wrong. But I think that the air spaces within the sand expands and it makes it fluffier. And also, if somebody's been before you, they've churned it up, which again makes it softer. So with in sand driving, it's always momentum. Momentum and being in the right gear is key. Um, and you can always tell, like you say about the apple leaf trees, you can always tell that you're coming up to a really sandy spot. But there's other indications as well. There's There might be sticks sticking out in the tracks, which is people putting branches in the tracks 
to get themselves And then out. those branches break and then they become little twigs sticking up. So that's kind of an indication. Um, another one is that the, the spore itself has disappeared because the sand is making a little V in the tracks. Um, if you can see the, the tracks of the car in front of you, then it's probably going to be okay. If you can't, then that little V is a very good, good indication that it's very soft sand and momentum is going to be key and you're going to have to be in the right gear. Second gear seems to be a very good um, all-round gear. <clears throat> being able to go a bit slower, but also being able to accelerate um, through the sand. Um, yeah. And still being four high? Four high, four yes, high. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Sand is very easy to drive in once you're used to it. So if you've deflated your tires and um, you're going at the right speed with the right amount of momentum, you're not spinning the tires. Spinning is digging. If you get to the point where you're spinning your tires, then you are not you are not driving correctly, in my opinion. And you should probably back off a little bit. Try and let the torque of the engine take over rather than using the power of the engine. Um, this Which is very means easy. Put off the accelerator a little bit and let yeah. the gears do yes. the work. It's very easy to do with diesels because all their torque is very low down in the rev range. So ease off a little bit, stop spinning. When you're spinning like that, you're also churning up the sand for anybody behind you, which is going to make it worse for them. Mm -hmm. So you've got to think about whoever's in your convoy behind you, you might be causing problems for that. And if people are in a convoy, is it, would you recommend that they wait and go sort of one at a time through the section to make sure somebody's through? Or if they know that they can do their driving, keep the momentum going, then it doesn't matter what the yeah, following distance is? There, there should be a gap between people. I mean, if somebody does run Sink. into trouble ahead, then you're going to need to reverse at some point in driving, when you're trying to get up, you need to reverse first because of that little um, sand dune yeah. in front of your tires. So you've got to reverse. So there's people behind you and you're stuck and then they stop. So they're stuck. Then you're limiting your ability to extract yourself. Um, so, yeah, there should be a gap and there should be a gap anyway, because that's how we're taught to drive, isn't mm -hmm. it? By having stopping distance between vehicles yeah so if someone is driving along and they start having a little bit of a moment of panic the worst thing they can do is try and put their foot flatter because mm. that's going to make it spin mm. and then the second worst thing would be to actually just stop because then you put your foot on the brakes yes. a bad idea that you just think yes that's a very good point never use your brakes by using your brakes you're actually going to build up more of a sand dune in front of your tires and when you try to take off that sand dune acts like a chock, mm. and you will just spin and dig, and then, yes, okay. problems. And then that's that's in the dry, hot mm. times. That's where we panic about the sand. Yeah. But in the um, wet season, mm. it's the cotton soil and the mud. Well, let's, let's talk about a water crossing <clears throat> first, because water crossings can happen all the time, any okay. time of year. How, do, how should people take up on a water crossing? Water crossings, you should walk at first especially if you're not familiar with it. There could be anything under that water, holes, logs, things that you're going to get hung up on. If you're not willing to walk it, you shouldn't drive it. Because if you get stuck, you're going to have to get out of the car anyway. I would always say your first choice with the water crossing is to not do it. Because there are so many other problems associated with water crossings. You get water in the dips, you get water in the gearbox. Um, you could drown the car if it's too deep. So avoiding water crossings 
should be your first plan of action. If you if you cannot avoid it, you have to be willing to walk it. Um, if there's any problem and you haven't walked it, you're going to get out of the car. So if there's a crocodile and that's what you're worried about, or there's a hippo or you're just unfamiliar with it, don't drive in it mm-hmm. if you're not willing to walk it. If you are in a group and you have to go, I would say perhaps, and you have a snatch recovery kinetic strap, you should probably attach that before you drive through the water so that somebody can quickly, quickly pull you back if there's a deep hole. The longer you're in water submerged, the worse it's going to be for your car. The quicker they can extract you, the better. So you're saying just have it attached at the back, that as soon as someone sees there's a problem, you don't even have to get out yourself. Yeah. They just attach it to a vehicle. Grab that you strap and, and, and recover them, yes. Well, that's a good tip. And <laughs> in terms of if you are now, you've walked it, you've determined that there are no big hairy holes, mm-hmm. um, and you're going to do this water crossing, what should you do in terms of preparing your car for the crossing? If you're going to do it, you need to commit. You can't do it half-assed. Um, and momentum is key. So make sure your your hubs are locked at the front if you have freewheel hubs. Make sure you're in low range. Second gear. Second gear is the most versatile gear off-road. Um, with petrol engines, I always use petrol in the Delta. I've never had a diesel. So I always had a can of WD-40 or silicon spray. I would spray it all over the HT leads, the distributor, um, coil packs in some of the cars, I'd spray it everywhere, even on the alternator. And it actually does offer a, a level of protection against water and, and cutting out and issues like that. I also used a wading blanket, which is, it was basically for me just a piece of old blue sail that I put in front of the radiator. Mm-hmm. So I would, would... Yeah, it, it makes a bow wave, it makes a better bow wave, and it didn't push the water through the radiator. And then if it does push through the radiator, then the fan picks it up and flicks it anyway. So if you prevent that from happening, you're also not going to get water on your distributor and on your HT. So, yeah, a wading blanket, just a simple piece of waterproof canvas or something would, would do for that. And then, of course, take it off when you finish your water crossing because you don't want to overheat the engine. Yeah. So water crossings, low, second gear, you're going to use low range on the water crossings yeah. and the, the hubs locked. And again, again, as you say, commit, commit don't to it. stop. Bra- and don't put the brake. <laughs> don't change gear. As soon as you change gear, because you, you think... You break that momentum. But the, the, the clutch is disengaged from the flywheel. Water gets in there and then it won't re-engage properly and then it's just going to be spinning. So commit and keep going. And remember with the diesel, all your torque is low down. So maybe you need to have lower revs in order to utilize all the torque so driving the car and familiarizing yourself with the car day to day before you get to this point is important as well where are where is the torque on this car where is the perfect rev range in that gear all these things you need to be thinking about with in knowing in mind at some point you're going to have a you're going to have sand you're going to have mud you're going to have water and you're going to need that torque and at the end of the day that's actually what people want no one wants to come to do a self-drive safari and never be slightly challenged by the terrain oh yeah no, because no, i mean yes. then you might as well hire a corolla and stick to the tar roads i mean if you you're, you're hiring a four by four and you're self-driving it is because you are that is part of the adventure is the 
is a challenging time. I always say, if you're not getting stuck, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> I don't know if that's not the right kind of advice we want. No, I, <laughs> I, I think it is, because if you get stuck, you learn. Yeah. Well, I did that wrong. And then you, you, you take it to the next level. If you don't get stuck, I think people become quite complacent and arrogant to think, wow, this is an amazing car. But actually, you haven't challenged yourself or the limits of the vehicle properly. So, yeah, you, you need to get stuck in order to learn how not to get stuck. If you don't get stuck. But also get stuck in a way that you can get yourself out. Well, yeah, self-extraction is, is of course, part of it, yes. Mm-hmm. And you, you can self-extract. It's not, you don't have to call somebody like me. You've got the water, the sand, the next one's the mud. Any, any tips for tackling a muddy Mud stretch? is a nightmare. It really is. I don't really believe in mud tyres. Um, I think mud tyres just dig. Mud tyres actually deflated are quite good on sand. In mud, I think that no matter how thick the mud is, or maybe because of how thick the mud is, it'll coat that tyre very quickly. Um, and you lose all traction because now it's completely mm-hmm. smooth. And spinning that tyre to clean it is just going to dig you. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, mud tyres, I don't believe in mud tyres. I do believe in, um, I had Goodyear Wranglers, and it was a hybrid of a mud and an all-terrain. And the, the tire itself had little paddles on the side. Those little paddles, as small as they were, gave me grip on the side of the track, mm-hmm. especially in deep ruts. Those tires got me out of mud every time. They never, ever let me down. Um, and it wasn't a particularly aggressive tread. I'm trying to think what the I think they're called Dura tracks. It's not an aggressive tread, but it is it is closer to a to a an all terrain tire rather than a mud tire. So that yeah, the type of tire is important, but also knowing the type of tire you have and its capabilities and limits is important. A, a diff lock is is very good in mud, but you have to use that. You have to engage a diff lock before you get into trouble you can't there's no point putting it afterwards because again in mud momentum is going to be key and how to extract yourself self-extraction is is one of the most important things you could learn to become self-reliant so so yeah so what are the options for self-extraction um the obvious one would be a winch if you have your own winch on the front or on the back of your car you could get yourself out you'd um, obviously have to be somewhere where, where there's trees, trees which yes. is sometimes we're often with Botswana, where the mud is, is not where the trees are. Very true. You're in the middle of a floodplain. There are sand ladders that I think also work quite well in mud. Mm-hmm. There is the option. Okay, so if you have a high lift jack, high lift jack is is a very useful tool for just for lifting the car to put logs underneath. That that's that's crucial. Um, but the high lift jack itself, you could actually use it as an anchor. And winch yourself off there. If you took the base plate off, if mm-hmm. you took the mechanism off, and it's just a very strong iron rod, and hammered that into the ground, and winch yourself off that, that does work. If you if you hammer it deep enough, um, it can give you traction. But like I say, the high lift jack itself, you could use as a winch. It does have a a hook on the top where you could put a bow shackle, and you could tie it to a tree, um, and and 
on the lifting plate of the high lift jack, there's also a hole where you could put a, a shackle. And you can you can winch you, you winch the jack yeah. to tighten it. You could only move yourself half a meter at a time, but that half a meter is can, can is the crucial. world, yes. Mm. It could be you could be that you're half a meter from actually firm ground. Mm. I've I've seen that before. And so that becomes very important. There are air jacks or exhaust jacks. Um, I think the, the new ones now they pump up on both your exhaust or a compressor. And you put this big bag underneath the car and it lifts you up and then you put branches underneath and away you go again. So, yeah, there are methods of self-extraction that people have access to. And then the, the one, there is one that somebody in the safari industry told me about, and I did try it myself. If you tie pieces of firewood to your tires as a sort of a paddle, it... If you don't have a diff lock, it gives just enough hesitation in your tires. If one tire is spinning, it'll stop that tire from spinning and allow it to allow the other one to catch up, and it, they, they will both turn at the same time if you have wood on both tires. So that yeah, that is a is a clever push push technique. Push technique. Yes. Okay. And now, I mean, we talk what we've spoken about so far is people getting stuck because of physical terrain issues. Mm-hmm. What happens if you get stuck because you've got an engine issue What or, or like a mechanical issue? What are the things people should look at first if they're trying to get their car going again? I mean, what, are, what do you see as being the most common things that can go wrong in that regard? I think there's, there's only two or three. It's, it's either the battery's not charging properly or your radiator's full of mud and you're overheating. Those are the two main ones. And those you should be able to deal with yourself out there. Or the starter motor goes. So maybe those three. I have in the past myself had a clogged radiator from from grass Grass seeds seeds. Mm -hmm. and managed to take the radiator off, um, clear it of grass seeds, put it back on again, refill it, and away we went. Um, and it was it was an old Hilux, and it was overheating, but it didn't it didn't get bad because I felt it and and noticed it before it overheated proper. Um, it was just getting hot rather than in the red. Um, yeah, so noticing things like that would would give you a little clue, and also checking, like I say, checking every day. You check is there grass seeds on the road? Are we in central Kalahari? Is a lot of grass seeds on the road? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, there's no excuse. Nothing just breaks. There's always plenty of indications before it get before it gets bad, especially with Toyotas. Land Rover maybe not so much, but yeah, Toyotas. Um so and the alternator, if the alternator is not charging, your your electrical systems in the car will start to fail one by one. Maybe the radio doesn't work properly anymore. Maybe when you're starting in the morning it's it's hesitating. It's still turning over, but it's hesitating. Like the, the, It's an indication of a problem there. You do need to be very well aware of your vehicle. Mm. And then obviously the other thing that can go wrong is flat tyres. And normally you've got your spur, so it's fine. But when you've got already got a flat spur, then you've got to start paying real attention to where you're going. Yes. Any, any tips for avoiding punctures? You can't avoid punctures. It's a, even if you have BF Goodrich tires, you you're gonna have a puncture at some point. Um, I think to have two spares is a very good thing. Um, 
to have a compressor or a pump, the ability to repair it yourself with those little plugs that you can put in the tire, that all these will be good things. All that would be important for you to familiarize yourself. It's not a difficult thing, a repair to make with those tire plugs. But having done it before, then you would feel more confident in, in doing it yourself mm -hmm. instead of having to call. You've been Jason to the rescue mm -hmm. um, in, in different scenarios. What's the most common scenario you, you, you were finding people needing your help with? Um, it was varied. It, there wasn't one particular car more than another that had problems. To be fair to all of them, the, the, <laughs> the, the ongoing <laughs> we know the, we know the ongoing debate between that yes. Land Cruiser um, <laughs> diplomatic answer. Older Toyotas like Prados and and Surfs they always seem to have ball joints on the lower control arms going. So again, this is not something that just suddenly goes because they're in Central Kalahari. They would have heard it squeaking. They would have been wear on the inside of the tire before it finally gave up the ghost. All these things need to have been checked by the driver, by the owner, by whoever is checking these things. But nothing just suddenly goes. An interesting one, though, has been brake pads, especially in the mud. When it's raining and it's very, very muddy and your car has ABS and traction control, I think the brakes are constantly going on and off to keep you in a straight line or to prevent you from having a problem and by the time you get to quiet your brake pads are finished that's not your fault that's not a maintenance thing that is kind you could put that squarely at the door of the manufacturer but it has happened a few times that people end up at quiet after lots of rain and mud and their brake pads are finished and the wife is complaining because the husband obviously never took care of the car but that's not the case it's just I'm sorry, a Mitsubishi Pajero is trying to keep you safe and on a straight line, and now the brake pads are worn out. So, there, yeah, there has been a couple of instances there when people over Christmas, their their holiday was interrupted purely because of brake pads. And that, I kind of feel, is unfair to everybody because that's not their fault. And mm -hmm. discoveries, the new Discovery 3s and 4s, they have an automatic handbrake. That doesn't like the water and the mud, and it will it will seize on. Um, and then the only thing we can do is load it onto the back of a, a, a low loader. Yeah, so it becomes very expensive. Yeah, that sounds pricey. Because of a stupid handbrake. Yeah. And in terms of these incidences you've dealt with, what what's the story that stands out in your mind the most in terms of, I'll never forget that, you know, it was, it was either a dire situation or they'd been stuck for a long time or... Any particular story moment when they were just extremely grateful to see you? Everybody is always <laughs> extremely grateful to see. What's one of the rewards of the job? Is it? Yeah. You're always popular. I'm. Yeah, I, I feel so popular and loved when I turn up. People will throw gold at you for coming out to rescue. Them. They really will. It. Uh, um. Yeah. There's no end to their gratitude. I have rescued some. Some. Very old. I think the youngest amongst them was like 72 years old. And there was four of them and they were in two cars. And they decided for some reason to drive down the Bodomatau Loop in the wettest season ever and got stuck. So they were in two cars. In front was a, was a KZTE double cab Hilux and he drowned his car. And the guy behind was in a 200 series V8 diesel cruiser 
and he tried to pull him out and for some reason his automatic gearbox failed and they sat there for three days until a guide happened to be driving down that road. I think it was mostly closed. Nobody was driving down there. So why this guy decided to drive down there, I don't know. And he came across some, tried to pull the Hilux out, couldn't, went back to Takanaka and then called me. By the time I got there, they they were very comfortable. They had all their chairs and they had food, but they 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 were staying at Kazakini and they'd gone there on a day drive. Oh, so no change of clothing, no, no camping kits. They were lucky they had enough water, I think. But then the other thing that I'm thinking, like, but Kazakini should have been checking on their guests. Like, where well, are they? Why where did they, they not realize they didn't come yes, out? Like, th- this seems to be a common problem in Botswana. It, it, this is not the first time it's happened that, that people go out on a game drive, they don't come back, and then a week later somebody finds them somewhere. Which is another reason why I started 4x4 Bush Warrior, because I, I, I felt like somebody really needed to look after these people. Mm. So, so there's another tip. If you are going into an area, make sure somebody is paying attention to you. Yes, people should clocking know where in, you are. Clocking where, in at the next what spot. What your itinerary is. If you're traveling um, Muremi and Savuti, there is signal in between. You do need to be communicating with people. And if you if they don't hear from you, they need to be alerting somebody. Um, but coming back to those old people, having been there for three days, I arrived at, I think, four o'clock in the afternoon to great cheers and, and joyous, you know. Um, and then it took two minutes to pull the Hilux out of the water. But the tank was full of water. I think that the... Yeah, it been sitting in water for three days. Yeah, the, the, the whole diesel system, all the way as far almost as the filter had water in it. The intake, the air filter was dry. So we knew then that we could, if we could drop the tank and empty the tank and then pump through fresh diesel, we'd be able to get it started. But it took us six hours to do all that. And it did start. And, and the guy drove out. But the old guy, the really old guy who was into his 80s, he wouldn't leave his 200 series. He wouldn't come out with us. And he insisted on staying. He said, no, no I'm, I'm quite happy. Leave me here. Send somebody for me. So we drove out. I think we drove out. We got back to Mount probably at 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, I escorted them to, to where they were staying at Kazakini, and I went on to Mount. And then first thing in the morning, they drove into town, and I went to Gabriel and got Gabriel to send a truck out to go and pick up, to go and pick up this this automatic D4D V8 4.5-litre 200-series cruiser. I could not have physically towed it because there was so much water. They were on a little island completely surrounded by water. I couldn't have, I couldn't have towed it. It, weighed, it weighs like a ton more than my car does anyway. So I, we had to send the truck, and it was an automatic we were going to try and take the prop shaft off, but there was just, we could not get access underneath because all the suspension was down. Is that is an option. The trucks can get out there or there's yes. some areas where the trucks can't get. Yes, the there are. No, trucks? where I can't get the trucks can still get there. Okay. There might be some windy roads, but there's always a way around and they can always get to people. The thing is the trucks are incredibly expensive to run. And people don't always want to have to pay. They, they, they might feel like they're actually buying the truck. It's yeah. that expensive. Mm. 
Well, you want if you to, want to leave your car in Miami yes. or bring it out. Yes. And you talked about Bodunga Tower, which I think is those of us who live here know that Bodunga Tower can be very, very tricky and you mm-hmm. do not go at certain times of the year. Mm-hmm. Are there any other areas that you think first-time safari goers should just avoid in terms of if they, that when looking at the itinerary, they should be aware that this is an area you just sh- should go with caution? I think like up to Dead Tree Island. Yeah, there are places. But I, I think that being aware and doing research. And having a good map. And having a very good map. And knowing how to read the map. Because there was a couple who were misreading their map and they thought they were on one road heading towards the main track, but they were on the main track and actually in trouble and didn't realize how much trouble they were in. So being able to read the map correctly is going to be very important. Well, I must say, um, recently there have been some really good um, maps produced where with commenting on deep water crossings and putting that kind of information in so that if you're planning your trip for the morning, you actually have a better idea, you know, what might look like a doable loop on an older map. Mm-hmm. Suddenly on the newer maps, you realize actually there's three water crossings on it and it's not going to be doable. Yes. And also current up-to-date local knowledge is mm. very important. If you're staying at Third Bridge, talk to the staff there. They will know where the good routes are. Yeah. They may even be they may even be able to tell you where the lions are. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so talk to the to the locals in that area that you're staying in as well. And then the general rule of thumb, if there are no tracks going down the road, yes. don't go down it. If nobody's been down there before you, you're on the wrong road. Mm. Yeah. The locals will be ignoring that or leaving that alone because it's a problem. Hot tip. It's, it's some of the stuff's just seasonal, and, and you just got to know that. Yes. Depending on what's happening with the floods, mm. depending on where the flood waters are, doesn't matter that it looks like there's a road there. You sh- you, you cannot do it. Yes. I remember my first time going down to Budumatau, and you get to this beautiful lagoon, and according to the map, there's a road going straight off that island across the other side, but it's a lagoon with hippos in it. <laughs> yeah, <just laughs> you know, wishful thinking that it is what's yeah. on the piece of paper. Yeah, don't follow the GPS. Just because the GPS says go this way doesn't yeah. mean it's right. And in terms of GPSs and that kind of stuff, any other equipment you recommend people have with them? I really like two things on my phone. Um, GeoTracker records your track. As, using as the phone's a, GPS. Using the phone's GPS. So it, it afterwards, it's very interesting. It's it's very kind of informative as to where you went, and, and you can download the maps, and then you can see. But it, it gives you your speed and altitude, and I, I find that very good. But also, if you get lost, it'll actually help you to get back to where you started. Although I don't see how you could get lost in Botswana because the roads are quite simple. And then Maps.me. Maps.me i found to be very, very good. A very, very good general GPS that I think it's... it's also on it, your phone. Yeah, also on your phone. It's it's updated by members of the Maps.me community. So if somebody goes there, you will see somebody's put their um, a lion kill. But it'll be from like four years ago. But there, there are people updating mm. and they put their campsites are there. And yes, mm. I found those to be very useful. When my GPS failed to help me, then Maps.me on the phone was actually very, very good. Oh, that's great to know. And a sat phone, is a sat phone a must? Is it? I mean, uh, are you, I mean, if you've got one, you obviously can call for help yourself rather than waiting for someone to come and find you. But. Yes. So the sat phone... You do have to be careful which sat phone you choose as well, and I don't know which one it is. But one of them, Botswana or the northern Botswana, is actually the the absolute lower limit of where it's actually effective. 
So yeah, be be very careful that you choose a sat phone that works in the area that you're going to be in. Mm. There is another device that Garmin sell now, and it's called Garmin Spot Tracker or something. And basically, it's it's a GPS, but it'll have like three options on it. There'll be a, a button with a preset message that says, uh, we've arrived in camp, everything's fine. And it'll send an email to me or someone like me via satellite. And each one of those messages, it sends the exact GPS coordinates to an email, to your email. And if you open it, it shows them shows you exactly where they are on the map. That, I think, is probably the most user-friendly help get help device if you like mm-hmm. without um, the cost then of a sat phone without the cost so you still have to have money on it in order to send and receive the messages some of them hook up to computers and then you can do more elaborate messages some of them are like a cell phone and you can type simple messages there is so many out there but i think garmin probably has the best one well i'll put a link to that in the show notes so somebody listening to this wants to get the tech they can they yeah. can go and look it up and i'll also link to those apps you mentioned and get that kind of thing fantastic anything else that you think we might not have covered that somebody venturing into the wilds of Botswana on their own should be aware of learn how to make a fire yeah this is something I think if you want to remain married yes (laughs) (laughs) learn how to make a fire learn how to braai properly I think those are important but I, I do have some tools in my toolkit that I found particularly useful on every trip, a tire pressure gauge that works and a way of... He said that three times now. I hope everybody listening has really (laughs) heard that tire pressure gauge. There's one thing you're buying. If you have a spade and a tire pressure gauge, I believe you could get yourself out of any situation. Every time I turned up to rescue somebody, the first thing I would do is check their tires, check the tire for pressure. And every single time I needed to take air out of them without fail. You always have to have a spade. It, it, I think that goes back to my childhood. We would never go anywhere. Whether we were traveling on our bed for TK, we would have spades. Or in my dad's Land Rover or my uncle's Jeep, you would always have a spade. It's the most important piece of kit. And an axe. But you could use a spade as an axe. So, yeah. I found recently I found this gadget, if you like, called the Indeflate, where you can actually hook two tires up at the same time and it, it joins through a gauge so you you can deflate two tires at the same time but it also equalizes pressure between two tires so if you have if you have been off-road and you don't have a compressor what i would say is pump your two spare tires up to maximum if it can take 450 pump it to 450 then you can let your tires down on the car and be, be comfortable knowing that you have spare air in the back tires, and then you hook up your indeflate to your spare tire and your and your soft tires, and it will equalize the pressure. Mm-hmm. And if you're clever about it, you could equalize all the tires' pressure by using that extra air that you have. It's like it would be like an, an air pressure tank. So I I love as a piece of kit, I love that indeflate. It is so useful. You can even lend air to somebody else if their tire is soft and you've just fixed it with a plug. 
because mm-hmm. it was going down and nobody has a pump or a compressor. You could actually lend somebody else air or they could scavenge air from their other tires just to, to get all the tires the same pressure. All the tires being the same pressure is more important than what the pressure is. Than the actual pressure is, yes. And when and when you when you would arrive out at a, a scene and somebody's stuck, mm. what was going through your head before you got there? I mean, would you know what the issues were? Would you have no. already sort of been able to pre? No, you, I, you'd have to just have all all potential solutions up your sleeves. No, they they tell you what was wrong, but nine times out of ten they'd be wrong oh. in their assessment of what the problem was. So try not to have any preconceived ideas of what the solution is but try to have a broad idea of what the problem could be. People saying, oh, there's there's a problem with my battery, the car won't start, but it's actually the starter motor. You talked about the situation with people who've been stuck out for three days. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in their situation, it really was dire and they, they needed help and yeah. the guide had tried to yeah. fix, pull them out already. Have you ever had a story where you've arrived and basically you switched a switch and driven the car straight out and they're like feel it, sitting there feeling sheepish? I did, it's not a comment on the brand, but I did do that for a guy with a Discovery 3 or Discovery 4, and they'd been driving between Third Bridge and Kwai, and he'd managed to get himself stuck, trying to extract himself. He'd actually overheated the engine, oh, and then a little plastic pipe on the cooling system had cracked, so then he lost all the water. They called me, and I managed to get the part at Land Rover here in Mount and took it up to him. And when I saw the trouble he was in, I said, oh, but um, I could drive this out. So we put the plastic bit back in his car, topped it up with antifreeze again, and I drove it out without any assistance. But I deflated the tires. Mm. So it comes back And to that. he was convinced. It's his car, so fair enough. But he was convinced it could not be driven out. I would have to pull him out. Well, are you ready for your snapshot session? So, Jason, you have told us about a lot of kits, but I want to know, what is your most precious or valued piece of safari equipment and why? That's a good question. I really like the in-deflate where you can deflate two tires at the same time. But um, a very good friend gave me a little teeny tiny LED lenser lamp that's, that's USB chargeable, and it's really super bright. So that is... I, I am taking that with me to England. That is brilliant. I have a little torch. I think I'm obsessed with torches. I have a little torch that goes in a cigarette lighter. So it's constantly on charge. And even though it's small, it's actually very, very bright. And it has quite a good distance as well as a good spread. So that, I think, and always having a torch on safari is is important. Yeah. And rechargeable. With the way that we drive cars these days, I think it's better to have it rechargeable than batteries. Batteries can always let you down. Ideally, the rechargeable ones won't. Fantastic. Which one destination would you recommend a first-time visitor to Botswana visits? I I like Central Kalahari. CKGR has has really good open vistas and, and the, the best game drives, I think, are within the pans. There's Passage Valley or Deception Valley. Um, I really enjoy that. And it's very accessible. Whether you come from Hansi side or you come from Mound side, if you try and get to Central Kalari from the south, though, it's very, very sandy and very inaccessible if you're inexperienced. So, yeah, I, I think you need to consider which way you're going to go in. And, you need to be aware. And, and do you recommend 
people do CKGR in convoy if they're self-driving, or is it okay to do it on your own? I mean, how likely are you to get stuck out there? I think, yeah, the, because most of the best game drives are actually on pans, if it's not the rainy season, you'll be perfectly fine. But like I said, anything could happen to the car. So it, it's always good to be in convoy. And these things are better shared with friends anyway. Yeah, exactly. Good times. Um, one resource everyone coming to Botswana should know about. Yeah, I found the 4x4 community, the South African one, to be a very good resource. They have sections for all the different car manufacturers. They have sections for Botswana, South Africa, Lesotho, all the, the Southern African countries, but points north as well to, to East Africa as well. Okay, fantastic. So, so people put trip reports in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so even you can look at that while you're as early as planning your trip. Yes. No, that, that helps in planning the trip, yes. Yeah. There was somebody from Man who was on there regularly asking, answering questions for people, but she's moved. Well, I'll put the link for that forum onto the onto the show notes as well, so that people can go and look for that if they are interested in crafting their own self drive um, itinerary and experience. Your top sundowner destination drink or piece of advice? I think perhaps the best one you've ever been to is always the last one you've ever been to. So just. This weekend, we went with very good friends to Samadupi Pan, and that was nice. I'd never been before, which everybody found surprising. That was really good. But I like the Kalahari. I grew up in the Kalahari. Yeah, you're showing your desert roots. Yes, I like the Kalahari and the flat, open vistas that you get. So I think the central Kalahari again, I think CKGR. Okay. Yeah. This is a bit of a bittersweet one because you don't. But if you did still have one weekend left to mm. explore locally, where would you be going? Oh, I wanted to do one more trip in the Kalahari around Hansi, the down Oakwood Valley and up the back of the farms. I wanted to do that one more time. I think I'm very CKGR-centric. Yeah, The Delta's great, don't get me wrong, but um, I, I prefer the desert mm. to the Delta. And um, and that in that area you're talking about now, sort of Western Kalahari, mm. um, Kalahari Catline, Aqua Valley, that that would be then it's quite off the beaten track. So that's more advanced self-drive experiences. Yes, it is. Um, I, I, but I, nice to mention to somebody who's come to Botswana many times and mm. looking for somewhere. Looking for somewhere off the beaten track that there's hardly anybody down there. It's amazing. It's an amazing area of the country that is largely unexplored mm. and w- places to stay there would be grasslands yes where else is there accommodation oh, there isn't much out of, else out of yeah. yeah there isn't much else there pretty much when you leave the tar you are self-sufficient um you could do a resupply at grassland and come in the back way but uh yeah it's i don't know if it's free camping but it's free camping mm. Mm. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for for sharing with us today, Jason. And I hope that it is not too long until you are once back in Botswana behind the wheels of 4x4 and adventuring out there and experiencing it again. Okay, thank you. Jason Kenner of 4x4 Bush Warrior sharing how to and how not to self-drive yourself around Botswana. I hope that if you've contemplated driving yourself around Botswana, listening to this episode has given you more confidence 
in what to do and also gives you some tips on how to be better prepared for heading out into the bush. As always, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference to the ratings and the standing of the show. The inspiration for this episode came from an email I received requesting some self-drive traveler advice. So if you do have any particular episode you'd like me to record or any suggestions for an episode, or if you would just like to give me some feedback, please contact me at beautifulbotswanapodcast at gmail.com. I really appreciate every email I get, and it is great to hear from listeners to know that indeed you are out there and I do have people listening. I thank you once again for taking the next step in this journey with me.